now that he's finished with it. Yes, he was a pretty decent student. He did a decent job on his... No, he was an excellent, excellent student, and it was my honor to serve uh, as his thesis advisor. Well, welcome back to our third installment. It's a, my great pleasure to be here among, among friends. Uh, ha, well, friends and, and, and enemies, I guess. I don't know. I don't see too many out there. Amen. Well, it's good to be here, and we have a kind of ambitious this evening, but a lot of material to cover. We're going to pick up where we left off last week uh, by continuing to sort of make our way through some of the highlights of each of the seven churches. We covered Ephesus last week, uh, the church that Desi sort of focused on, uh, though an earlier manifestation of it under the ministry of Paul. And so we'll start with uh, Smyrna and then move forward from there and hopefully be able to cover chapters five and uh, four and five as well. So we got a lot to cover. So we're going to kind of shift into a, a, a bit of a higher gear and move forward. So we'll be reviewing these reports or messages from the Spirit of God to the various seven churches. Um, Mixed results, some good, some bad, even within the same uh, letter or, or message or oracle, the Spirit has some good things to say and perhaps negative things to say. So these letters are encouraging, shocking, all of them are sobering, and yet they offer spectacular uh, promises to believers who follow through and remain faithful. So even though many of the applications today may be different, most of us, uh, you probably weren't tempted this evening if you had dinner before service to eat food offered to idols. I think there were too many of you who went to the local uh, pagan temple and, and, and bought some of their discount meat. Does anyone? Don't see too many hands going up. Uh, and Brother Moss and I went to... Uh, Cracker Barrel yesterday, they did not have a meat sacrifice to idols special menu. Didn't see one. They did have special items for senior citizens, but. <laughs> but we still are tempted to compromise, to accommodate, to blend in, not to be faithful witnesses in these last days. So some of the specific situations have changed, but some of the, the larger temptations still remain with us today. So we'll continue with the second letter, namely to Smyrna, and we're going to uh, listen up and let's hear what the Spirit says to the church. Amen. All right. It's working. Everything's working. I love it when technology works. So Smyrna, I w uh, Stephen and some of the rest of us were visited these seven churches several years ago. Smyrna is north of, essentially north of Ephesus along the coast, uh, was a port city, was a cultural center. They had a library, they had a shrine dedicated to the poet Homer. Uh, they had temples to August, Caesar Augustus and, and uh, the emperor Tiberius. So it was, a, uh, like many of the other cities of its day, caught up in, in the uh, reverence of the emperor caught up in worshiping the various deities, building temples and shrines, offering sacrifices, and so forth. And so the Spirit, through the hand of John, writes to this poor church, a poor yet rich church. Have you ever felt poor, yet rich at the same time? Seems like an oxymoron. Well, this is addressed by the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. And this really represents the, the uh, saints there in Smyrna, dead but resurrected, dead but come to life. As we'll later see, the church in Sardis are described as being dead. So the church in Smyrna described as being having been dead but coming alive, according to the address. He says, I know you're, you're poverty, but... 
but that you are rich. Amen? I think there's a deep message here for a very, very materialistic modern Western world who uh, we're often caught up in affluence and keeping up with the Joneses and trying to have a car that you know, measures up to the neighbors in a, in a house and so forth. We, we, we're very much a, uh, Amer the American dream, right? Oh, Paul, uh, I keep saying Paul. It's a, that's a slip from my uh, colleague, in the, a former colleague there in the back. Paths of Paul, right? Paths of John. I didn't ask for your comment there. No, just kidding. So this is very interesting. He says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. What is he getting at? That's a pretty harsh thing to say to anyone. A synagogue of Satan. We have to remember that one time Christianity was part of Judaism, right? Jesus was Jewish. The early Christians, for the most part, were Jewish. And they were protected by the Romans. They were a long-standing tradition, and they were exempted from taking part in a lot of the um, official rites and ceremonies of the Roman Empire. So they, were, they had a special status, and they had a special exemption where they, didn't, they weren't forced to offer incense to the emperor, for example, and to participate in various... Uh, festivals and rites that went against their conscience and against their... And so Christianity, having been a child of, of Judaism, was protected as well. But then over time, some of the Jews began to attack and uh, go against the Christians and said, these aren't really our people and brought attention to Christi Christians. What's going on? Here, I, I think I keep skipping out on this. You want to take a look? Okay. All right. Yeah, sorry, having some technical difficulties. I noticed that the mic keeps turning off. What's that? Amen. I'll, I'll, I'll take all of that I can get. <laughs> so Christians lost their exemption status. They lost that protection under the umbrella that the Jews enjoyed, and it made them vulnerable, right? And the Romans, start, or the Romans started looking at the, the Christians and persecuting them and saying, you have to keep up with and you have to do the same things that other Roman citizens are required to do. And so Christianity found itself in a bit of trouble. And many Christians found themselves unemployed, right? Because they're, these trade guilds that they belonged to pushed them out and said, you're not going to cooperate, you're not going to burn incense to the emperor, We're not going, you're not going to give uh, uh, worship and reverence to our pagan gods, that's it, you're fired. And so that's very likely why many of the Christians in Smyrna were poor. Not that Smyrna was a, uh, a poor place, but because many Christians found it increasingly difficult to find employment. And the letter warns, uh, warns them that you are going to be, uh, you're going to uh, be imprisoned and you're going to go through trials that are going to test your faith. The Romans are going to try some coercive cooperation. Let's throw you into prison and see how long you can stand it until you'll finally start worshiping our gods, giving honor and reverence to the emperor, and so forth. So the spirit warns you'll be tested, but he says, be faithful unto death and you shall receive the crown of life. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So think about some of the applications. How might this oracle apply today? What liberties do we enjoy today, for example, in the United States, right? That could come under attack, right? And some of those liberties are actually in the process of coming under attack. Uh, what if our freedom to worship was removed? What if we were barred from jobs because of our Christian stance? 
And what if we were treated hostilely and ostracized by society? What if we were imprisoned and even tortured for our faith? And you say, well, that couldn't happen in America. Oh, yes, it, yes, it can. If you look at the events of the, the 1930s where uh, uh, the Jews in, in, uh, in Nazi Germany soon lost their, their liberties, lost their businesses, lost their jobs, lost their freedom, and eventually many of them lost their lives. Things can turn over very, very quickly. So let's move on to Pergamum, a city also on, along the coast but further north. So we had Ephesus, Smyrna, and then Pergamum. The church in danger of assimilating. What do we mean by assimilating? To, to blend in, right? To start to lose one's Christian distinctions. People can't tell if you're a Christian or not. If people don't know whether you're a Christian, that can be pretty bad news. The Lord says to this church, I got a sharp two-edged sword. <laughs> what a way to greet a church. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a weapon in my hand. I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. This, this, the tenor of this letter is quite different than that to, to, the, to the people of Smyrna. I know your works, and I know your address. I know where Satan's throne dwells. Possibly a reference to the altar to Zeus that sat upon the Acropolis in Pergamum. And we visited uh, where, where that, uh, that altar to Zeus used to be. It's now been moved to Berlin. Likely, this is where Satan's throne uh, uh, dwelt. Here, Zeus was the the highest uh, deity in the, in the pantheon, uh, and this was the seat of power. Of course, in chapter 4, what are we going to see? We're going to go up into heaven. We're going to see the, act the, the throne of God himself, much greater, much more incredible and grand and so forth than Satan's throne down in Pergamum. You've faithfully upheld my name, even when Antipas, one of your own, died as a martyr. But I have a few things against you. The Lord has some issues with some of the things that were going on in the church in Pergamum. Some hold the doctrine of Balaam. How many remember Balaam? He was that wacko prophet, remember? Uh, he was a rogue prophet hired by the Moabite king, Balak, who taught to trip up Israel with idolatry and fornication. Yeah. He was the guy that had an argument with a donkey. <laughs> and the donkey, donkey talked back to him. You got to know your sanity's <laughs> in jeopardy. You know, it's one thing to have an argument with your wife. It's another, another thing to have an argument with yourself, but an argument with a donkey? Now, I'm just waiting for the Lugos to have an argument with their guinea pigs. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. <laughs> the talking, talking donkey. Well, he says, you guys got a, Balak, uh, a Balaam person. I always get Balaam and Balaam. Yeah, Balaam. Balaam among you. Probably a nickname of a prophet who is trying to seduce them into eating meat sacrificed to idols, which was compromising with pagan de deities, and to commit fornication. So let's talk very briefly about this whole issue of meat offered to idol idols. Civic festivals honoring the pagan gods. We in America, we have parades, we have carnivals, things like that. Well, they, they would have these uh, festivals where they would honor the gods, and people would come and they would serve meat sacrificed to idols. One could also go to the meat market and one could purchase excess surplus meat that had been offered up to, to uh, pagan gods in their various temples and it was left over, excess, and they sold it at discount and you could buy that meat and eat it. And, and a Christian, many Christians thought, well, hey, I don't, I don't believe those gods exist. Here's a good bargain. I'm just going to buy this meat. And then there were often banquet rooms or dining rooms connected with shrines and temples where you could come in almost like a, a restaurant and you could simply eat meat sacrificed to idols. 
So he warns them. Also about Nicolaitans. We talked about those last week. Hiding among you. Repent or I'll use my sword. But he does offer them a promise. He says to the overcomer, I will offer hidden manna. We're not exactly sure what that is, but you remember that the the Israelites were fed uh, this mysterious wafer-like, almost like a cookie that that grew on the ground uh, six days a week, and they would feed on that as they made their way across the wilderness. Well, here the Lord says, I have hidden manna that you don't know of, and a white stone with a new name written. Now we move to Thyatira. Thyatira was another city that uh, didn't have a very good report card. Yes, you've got some things going for you. Thankfully, it wasn't hopeless. This was a town known for its commercial enterprises and its trade guilds. A lot of commerce, a lot of trading, a lot of buying. Of course, this impacted the church. And they are addressed by the Son of God, which, by the way, for those of you who study uh, what's called Christology, the study of Christ, this is the very first reference in the book of Revelation to the Son of God. We've had Son of Man back in chapter 1. Now we have Son of God, who who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Where have we heard that before? Back in the inaugural vision of chapter 1, describing this one like the Son of Man, whose eyes were flaming uh, like flames of fire and his feet were as fine brass. To this church's credit as a long list of I knows. I know your works, I know your love, I know your service, I know your faith, I know your patience. Not bad. Think about it, Stephen. Paul told the Corinthians the most important are what? Love. Faith and also mentioned hope. So he doesn't mention hope here, but at least they've got two of the, 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 the important requisites checked off the list. Or we might, the letter could have ended here and, and we would have said, hey, great job, you're doing fine. But he warns them, they're lacking some things. I've often seen in it, it, being a, a, a member of the apostolic movement now, many, many, never you mind, years. And sometimes, sometimes we're not very good at self-critique. We like to think we're doing great, even though sometimes we are lacking in certain areas. We're to hear what the Spirit says to the church. God, God critiques us. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, don't, don't be upset if God chastens you like he chastens you because you're little children. He loves you. And he wants you to, f- to do well. And so he says, watch out. He says, watch out. There's a woman in your life. <laughs> There's an evil woman in your life. Some of the husbands went, oh, oh no, I've got a woman in my life. <laughs> well, you're supposed to, if you're a husband, you're supposed to have a woman in your life. But there's an evil woman. And you tolerate her. You just welcome her and let her do her thing. You tolerate Jezebel. Now, way, way back, in the, way, way back, my mother had a car, a black, I think it was a black Ford Fairlane, a 64 or something. We called it Jezebel. Red interior, black outside. It's not talking about that. This was a nasty lady. And you allow her to teach and beguile my servants. She shouldn't be up at the platform teaching. She shouldn't be given a venue to propagate falsities. She she, uh, beguiles my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Haven't we seen this before? Sounds like the, the, the prophet named Baal. And so she was a pagan Phoenician princess and seductress. She tried to uh, turn her husband, Israel's King Ahab, and his people to serve Baal and Asherah. Uh, You might remember her as the painted lady. She ordered the deaths of the Hebrew prophets. She arranged the, the unjust murder 
of Naboth, remember, who owned a, a vineyard next door, and her husband was pouting because he wanted that vineyard. She says, well, just we'll hire a, a couple of uh, uh, no-good-for-nothings, and they'll uh, testify against him falsely. We'll kill him. No problem. Let's just, I'll just go ahead and let's just arrange it, and we'll get rid of the guy. What, what, what's, the, what's the problem, Ahab? So she's known as the painted lady, and she met a horrible, wretched, gruesome death under Jehu when she was tossed out of a window of a tower and smashed on the ground, and dogs licked, licked her blood. And so he says, you have a Jezebel among you who is corrupting you. And instead of ejecting her, showing her the doorway, saying, you're not welcome here uh, because you're a false teacher. And we see some of this going on, right, in the in first epistle of John, second epistle of John. He says, when these false teachers show up at your house church, give them the boot kick, right? Don't even say hello to them because you know they're rotten apples. And so he says, you, you shouldn't be uh, welcoming this lady, but rather showing her on her merry way. So promises to the faithful. To those who have avoided her teachings, which he refers probably sarcastically, is the depths of Satan. Right? Remember what a wicked woman Jezebel was in trying to turn the hearts of Israel to, to serve false gods. He says to hold fast and be faithful till I come. The message is clear in each one of these letters. What is the church to do? To remain faithful, right? Despite adversity, despite persecution, despite social pressures and so forth, we are to toe the line and until his, uh, the Lord appears again. The overcomer will become a king. And here we have a passage uh, cited from Psalm 2.9, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter, they shall be broken to pieces. And here we have a sneak preview into eternity, into the next life. Do you, what do you think we're going to be doing in a heaven? S sitting around on a, on, a, on a beautiful couch and having, you know, beautiful women dropping grapes into our mouth and fanning us with ferns and angels floating around playing harps? No, we, those who are faithful will be ruling nations, right? Isn't that, isn't that right, Brother Moss? Okay, he's, he's kind of uh, reluctantly shaking his head. <laughs> Promises to the faithful. The, the overcomer will receive the morning star, typically referring to Venus. And in chapter 22, verse 16, refers to Christ. Sardis, a city with a long, very, very interesting history and uh, legacy, the city of Sardis. So, how about the evaluation of Sardis? What kind of report card did Sardis get? get? You're deceased. You're dead. There's the grim reaper. You're dead. You're rich, prosperous, complacent, overconfident, and smug. Right? we got to be careful. It is not necessarily wrong to own good things, but we can't be owned by good things. Right? So being rich and prosperous has a flip side, and that is to be, we can be, we can be poor towards God. We can be rich towards material things and poor towards our God. He says you guys are rich and, and prosperous. And this letter is addressed by one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, reminding us that the Lord is the one who lives among the churches. He sees everything. He's present among the, the life of the assembly. And it's not just when they come together to worship. He, he, he follows them. He knows everything that they're doing. He says, I, I know your works and your reputation. But you're deceased. You don't even have a pulse left. You're not even breathing. You need some resuscitation, some CPR. You need someone pumping your chest to get, to get the, the, the blood flowing because you are as good as dead. 
He said, you better work on what little is left, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Well, and the Lord says you're dead. Well, I can say you should stand up and take notice, but it's hard to stand up when you're dead. (laughs) So he gives them some final admonitions and promises. He says, remember how you heard. Remember the faithfulness with, with which you embraced the Christian message and how you have gotten off track. Be faithful. Repent. And if you don't stay alert, I will come like a thief in the night. When you are unprepared, I will show up, and then it will be too late to get your life right and to repent. He says, a small remnant of you are worthy. Some of you have white garments. Some of you have have repented of, of your sins, and you're ready and you're prepared to go, but the vast majority of you are not where you should be. So to the overcomer, you will be clothed in white. Your name won't be erased from the book of life, and I'll vouch for you at the judgment. Does anyone need an advocate? At the judgment seat, you want Christ to be your advocate? Do you want to be washed in the blood and wearing white, white clothing? It's interesting, by the way, a side note, if you study how white clothing was made back in those days and the kind of bleach that they had to use in the labor, uh, laborious process of making a garment glistening white. Very expensive, very uh, involved process. But thank God we can be washed white by the blood of the Lamb. We move on to Philadelphia. Some of you, I've been to Philadelphia. I'm going to Philadelphia tomorrow. I was in Philadelphia yesterday. Not the same Philadelphia, of course. His opening address, Philadelphia is one of only two churches that get virtually uh, A's on their report cards. What does he say to the church in Philadelphia? You're doing pretty good. He is a, uh, and the one who addresses them is the one who is holy or sacred. He who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. You know what the the devil's greatest desire for for you is? That when, when the day of judgment comes, you will not be able to get into the door, right? He wants to bar access. He wants to trip you up. He wants to do everything possible. He's wily, right? Satan is wily. But for those who are overcome uh, in, in the church in Philadelphia, the Lord says, I've, I've opened the door wide for you. I've got a wide open door into the kingdom. And no one can close that and bar you from the kingdom. He says, I know your works. And I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. You have kept my word. And you have not denied my name. So we're to remain faithful through pressures, temptations, difficulties, political situations, oppressive rulers, and so forth. We are to remain true uh, uh, apostolic believers in Christ. He goes on to say, like Smyrna, Philadelphia struggled against false Jews who will be made uh, to bow before your feet. Those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who have made life so difficult for you and have betrayed you. He says what? One day in the next life they will come down and like Joseph's brothers before their estranged brother, they will bow down and give obeisance to God's faithful saints. From Philadelphia he says, since you have persevered, you will be kept from the hour of trial which will come upon the earth. The one who overcomes will be made a pillar in God's temple. And he will have God's name and the name of New Jerusalem written on him. Imagine being a, 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 you being a part of God's holy temple. And of course, later on in the book, we, we learn about the gates of the city and the temple and the names of the apostles written on the, on the, of the 12 apostles written on the gates and so forth. To have uh, you inscribed and you being a part of, of that uh, eternal Uh, shrine. Now we move to the last of the seven churches. 
Perhaps one, in many ways, one of the most troubling of all the churches, Laodicea. Laodicea. Um, we've been to Laodicea. You can see, I keep saying it wrong, Laodicea. You can look across the valley and actually see Hierapolis on the other side. Hierapolis uh, has these beautiful cascading white mineral deposits and all these pools. Uh, Laodicea, there I go again, Decea, Decea, I have to practice Decea. Um, very disappointing, there's not a whole lot to see there. Uh, though less disappointing than Colossae, which is nothing more than a big hill, an unexcavated hill in the middle of a farm field. But Laodicea, said it right, like Sardis, a materially wealthy, complacent, indifferent church, they were comfortable. They were living in their comfort zone. They weren't self-critiquing. And they, even more importantly, they weren't letting the Spirit critique them. They weren't listening any longer to the voice of God. And they were becoming complacent. The city itself was rich and prosperous, and so were the, the Christians who, who were part of the church there. They were blending in and, and, and thriving off of the wealth of that city, big incomes, and so forth. This is addressed, this letter is addressed by the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And uh, scholars think that this may be related to uh, Paul's uh, uh, statement in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And of course, the, the churches in Laodicea and Colossae exchanged or shared letters between themselves. The Laodiceans were evidently not being faithful and true witnesses. I think it's important that we ask ourselves, are we being faithful witnesses to those outside the church that we, that we rub shoulders with, that we see at work, that we see on the street, neighbors and, and so forth, acquaintances? Can they tell there's a difference about us? Can they sense that we know the one who sits on the throne, who was and is and is to come? Can they sense the holy, sacred presence of God upon us? Or if we so blend it in that they can't tell the difference between us and any other person out there. And so they were blending into the environment and losing their distinctive identity. He says, I know your lukewarm works. So remember, the other churches, he pretty, for the most part, he said, hey, I know your works. It was a positive thing. He says, I know your works, Laodiceans. I know your works. They're, they're lukewarm. You ever been in a, sweating on a hot day and you wanted a nice, and you were anticipating a nice ice cold glass of water and it was lukewarm? It's kind of disgusting. And the Lord says, I'm going to spit you out because you are lukewarm. It's interesting that Hierapolis, which I already mentioned, has hot springs and Colossae had cold springs. But Laodicea's water supply was lukewarm, piped in on an aqueduct. And some have suggested that this represents the kind of lukewarm Christians that they were. They weren't hot, they weren't cold, they were somewhere in the middle. Not very pleasing to the Lord. And so uh, he says, You claim to be rich and self sufficient, but you are, watch this, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And this is very interesting Im imagery given that Laodicea had a very uh, thriving textile industry and made clothing, right? Known for its clothing. And yet he says, You saints in the church, you are spiritually naked. You're like the emperor with no clothes. You, you think everything's great, and you're just moving along and everything's fine when in fact you're exposed. So, Laodiceans, buy refined gold so you may be truly rich. Buy white garments so your shame won't appear. Buy some eye salve to annoy, uh, yeah, annoy. We got a lot of those people around. Anoint and restore your sight. And we know of a medical center there in Laodicea that manufactured, it was known for its eye salve. 
So it's interesting, by the way, side note, that these letters have, have fascinating connections to the environment uh, that they are addressing. Uh, and, and in this case, the, the water supply, the, the clothing, the garments that they wore, and anointing oil for their eyes. And so, many important admonitions. What, is, what does he say to them? He says, I rebuke and chasten those I love. Those that I care about, my children, I bring to their attention where they fall short. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I stand at the door, and that should be knock, not no. If any, that should be hears. You know, I got this really bad PowerPoint crew that, make, that, meant, that does these PowerPoints for me. You don't know how many of them I fired for incompetency. <laughs> if any hearts my voice, <laughs> if any hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. Amen. Does anyone want to dine with Jesus in that final banquet, that eschatological banquet? Does anyone want to have white garments and stand before the throne for eternity, worshiping the one who sits on the throne? So thank God for these uh, letters uh, that are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the earth have come. And that brings us now to the encore, which is the second, um, the second slideshow for tonight as we move on into chapters four and five. Amen. I'm excited. This is some fascinating stuff, fascinating material in chapters four and five. Chapter 4, and by the way, at about quarter past, we'll, we'll, which is in about five minutes, we'll break for Q&A and then have our intermission. Chapter 4 signals a significant shift in the setting from earth to heaven. So whereas, whereas chapters 1 through 3 are sort of at the ground level, the things that are presently happening among the churches of Asia Minor. In chapter four, we will shift and we will be given privileged supernatural access into what is happening in heaven, in the heavenly realm. And it's also a major transition in the narrative of the story of the book of Revelation. Some questions to ponder as we begin our journey through chapters 4 and 5. What does this new section have to do with the previous letters to the seven churches? It's easy, it's tempting, as one moves through the book of Revelation, to forget, our memories are short, to forget that this book is anchored in very important, critical oracles to seven churches, right? It's easy to get caught up in the excitement and the bizarre and in the bizarre and strange images that we're about to see and not to anchor them and remember that this is about how is the church living as they await the, the uh, future kingdom. Number two, what does this segue add to the, to the developing plot of the book, right? How does it extend, how does it if you will, add a, a, a twist or maybe even a, how are we turning a corner in the overall storyline of the book of Revelation? Number three, how does this modulation alter the reader's perspective on the drama? How is it going to be different looking at the drama that unfolds uh, before us, whether we're looking from the perspective of down on earth among the churches, right, where Christ dwells, uh, walking among the, the, the seven churches, to now going up, if you will, to the balcony of heaven, to the very vault, to the throne room itself, and to see the perspective from a God's eye viewpoint, right? How does life appear when you're looking through God's eyes down on earth, right? Some more questions to think about. 
Why does the throne now serve as the centerpiece or what, 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 what we might call in, in terms of a, a, a theatrical drama, the key prop of the entire book? We're about to see, to witness what will now be the centerpiece, the, the key uh, object, if you will, of the book of Revelation, the throne. Edicts come from the throne. Action happens from the th uh, throne. Perspectives are seen and viewed from the throne. Who is in charge? Who rules as sovereign potentate over human affairs and history? It may appear that Caesar does, right? It may appear that the guy in Rome to whom we burn incense, some of the churches did, right? Or, or, or at least they were uh, being forced to do so. Who actually rules? Is it the guy with the great entourage who, who, who sits uh, in Rome and is the emperor of the, Roman, uh, emperor of the Roman Empire? Or is it the one who is much higher, who rules over the universe and the, the cosmos itself? Some other questions to ponder. What is the imagery depicting, why does the imagery depicting Christ shift from the exalted son of man, a dazzling human figure, right? So we're looking back at chapter one, to a lion and then a lamb, which are animal from the animal kingdom. What's the relationship between these image, images and why does it shift? Why are we getting these different images representing Christ and his role. Why are we shifting from this, you know, dazzling figure who's, made, who's got shining feet and burning eyes and so forth, and now we're, we're seeing, John is seeing a lion, and then John is seeing a lamb. So these are some great questions to ponder. And now that we're virtually at 8.15... Uh, talking about questions, now we're going to allow you to uh, field some, I'll be fielding some questions, you'll be contributing some questions. Who is the, uh, who is running the questions this evening? And keep in mind, if I don't know the answer, uh, Arash is He's hiding, how convenient. So he before we go leaves. to our is this on? Yes it is. So before we go to our break, does anybody have a question on the first session? Anything they'd like to ask? Yes, ma'am. Be easy here. on me, please. Um. <laughs> You're not allowed to ask any questions. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, listening to uh, when you were talking about the seven churches, and um, I was just concerned that in every church there is a a part of every church there's there in the congregation of each church or in our in God's ecclesia. So now in in today's time we don't just see uh, just one that type of individual in a particular church of one of the seven, like Laodicea was the last church you mentioned. I mean, everybody is in the full congregation of God's church. Right. And so just like when God, you know, he's a spirit and he's with us at all times. Mm -hmm. So he is basically, you know, letting us know by our spirit because his spirit connects with our spirit when we're his, <clears throat> like the vine. So in essence, you, do you understand what I'm saying? In every church, <clears throat> in every church, every, the full ecclesia of God, you find those seven churches. Is that what you're kind of saying to me? Saying is that what I'm trying to understand? Because now today, John wrote those letters, right? John wrote those letters to those seven churches, right? John wrote? He wrote the letters to those seven churches. Yes. Okay. So he wrote them to each church at that time and that day and time. But, but we're, we're living in today's time right now. Right. So every church that he wrote to, you have that kind of personality in every church. Do you, do well, you see I think, I, I, think I understand what you're getting at. There were many, many churches that were present 
at the time that John wrote, was given the, the Apocalypse, the Re Book of Revelation, to pass on to the churches. Uh, and he only addresses seven of those when there were literally hundreds of them spread across the Roman Empire. And so those seven churches become representative. That doesn't mean that every other church out there was exactly the same as one of those seven, but, those, but they symbolize some of the tendencies, the problems, the, the, the issues that all the churches, to some degree or another, were facing. So no, many, many of the situations, the specific situations that they were facing differ now. We don't, as I mentioned, we don't deal with meat offered to idols and stuff like that. That's not an issue, in, especially in our country. But some of the same general principles we, we run into uh, today. So my way of reading this, the, the seven letters is to essentially apply where necessary. Us right now, then, if it, if the information that you're giving from the seven churches, right now in in this way time that we're living in right now, how would God address us and what the things that we are doing wrong individually or collectively? Well, there's a I mean, there's a number of ways directly that that would be addressed uh, through the role of the Spirit, through the role of the pastor, through the role of the of the ministry here. Um, you know, that's the the, the Christ walks among this assembly. Um, so again, there's some specifics that could apply. There's some that may not apply. And I'm, I'm not the pastor of this church. It's not my place to come in and, and reprimand people and so forth. I'm just trying to expound on, on this. And if it applies it, it, to, to you, either as a congregation or as an individual person, then by all means, heed it. If it doesn't quite apply to you, then it doesn't apply. So, we certainly would you see. would you concur, Pastor? Part of our problem is is we usually try to tie to either a specific age. Many times, people have done that and said each church represents a church age. Um, and I think that that's a little flat um, because we don't do that with any of the other letters of the New Testament. Letters to Corinth, letters to Rome, okay. We don't, we don't tie it to the age, so I think we make a mistake there. So that's one thing. Um, you're actually going the opposite direction with your question where you're saying, are we seeing all of this present within the church today? Exactly, within the overall body. And I think um, I concur with you, Dr. Brickle, that I think what it is is it's not in specifics, but in principle, yes. I think we need to be warned and encouraged. Let's emulate the things the Spirit said to the church in confirmation, in affirmation. Let's emulate those things. Let's be faithful. Let's withstand false doctrine, etc., etc., and also be warned by the things that, of course, the church, you know, let's be, I mean, Hello, America. We got an awful lot of money and an awful lot of things. We can think we're rich and clothed and we need to be warned. Could we perhaps be spiritually naked? So the warnings come in. So the specificity of each local church is tied just as Corinth and Rome and Ephesus and so on is. But we take those letters and pull out the principles of them and the applications. And that's how I see it. Is that? Yeah. That's, yeah. And if you look at even Paul's letters... He wrote different things to different churches because different churches were going through different situations. They were, some were doing well, some weren't. Uh, if, you can, if you look at uh, churches in some uh, countries of our world today, they're, they're going through horrible persecution. They're living, they, they're, they have underground churches because they aren't allowed to legally meet. So um, again, some, some of these situations apply, some may not. We have another question up here. Um, this was from Miss Joyce. Revelation 22 verse 4 says that God's name will be in our foreheads. Does that mean that we will know his name in our minds or will it literally mean it's written on our foreheads? I'm having trouble. 
So fair question. So she's reading. Someone had texted her a question. One of our church members okay. who was unable to be here tonight. And so we find later in Revelation. Oh, where's the passage? In 22, in Revelation chapter 22, it talks about the saints and how they have the name of God written on their forehead. Mm-hmm. And so the question was, is that something literal or is it representative? They will know who God is in their minds. What's your opinion on that? You know, that's a good question. I, I don't think it's literal, but it, but it could be. Um, what, it, what it does show is that God knows who his are. In fact, he'll, in, in chapter 7, I think, 7 or 8, uh, the saints of God are sealed. And much of what Satan will do in his kingdom is a parody. And so Satan's followers uh, have, have take on the mark of the beast, uh, which, there, which there's questions about what actually is the mark of the beast. Is it a physical some kind of tattoo or something like that that goes on them? Or does it have to do more with the commercial and uh, financial system of the first century that no one can buy or sell without sort of buying into uh, the, the ways of the beast, we'll say. So, yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know whether it's literal or not. How are we doing, how are we doing for time? Is it half past that we're supposed to quit or 20 past? You're five minutes over. Okay. We are a little over. So if you have additional questions, keep in mind when the second session ends tonight, Dr. Bricka will be here for a while. I know he will because I'm his ride home and I have a meeting. So he will be here for a while and you are welcome to come and address him directly and ask him additional questions. At this time, we're going to... And we have some snacks prepared and so by all means we'll go into intermission and then get ready to come back into our second session.